When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all, because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it, and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Open House Podcast. Today, I am back with the incredible Dr. Terry Mack, and we are so excited for today's episode. The reason that we are so excited is that not only are we going to be talking about Alex Earl, who everyone just cannot seem to get enough of still, but we're also going to be talking about the avoidant attachment style. Now, if you are a big fan of this podcast, that might be because you are anxiously attached because the whole podcast blew up and exploded in the best way possible when Dr. Terry and I took a little gentle step into the anxious attachment space. And by little gentle step, I mean I had a full-blown anxious attachment meltdown on episode 38, and Dr. Terry helped guide me through it. After that, we saw how many people were going through this, but there were still messages here and there saying, I'm avoidantly attached. Please, can you do the same thing for me? Equally, we are seeing so many listeners being in relationships with men or women that are avoidantly attached. And they really come to us in the house, in our premium room, asking so many questions about how to navigate the dynamic. Today, we're going to be talking all things avoidant attachment style, what it actually is, what is going on in the body when it happens, how it shows up, the key traits and sound bites that you need to be looking out for if you are dating someone and ultimately how you can learn to thrive with the avoidant attachment style, just like we teach you with the anxious. If you are a big fan of Alex Earl, no doubt you will have been following her new podcast, Hot Mess, and also listen to her on the Call Her Daddy podcast with Alexandra Cooper. And if you're anything like me, you would have spotted some little red, amber, and green flags throughout those episodes. And what I have done today is written down the sound bites so I can ask clinical psychologist Dr. Terry Mack, what is going on when she says the things that she said? But before we get into the fun, juicy soundbite part of the episode, we're going to talk about what the avoidant attachment style is and how it can show up in the brain, in the body, and in life in general. So avoidant attachment style, where do we need to begin, Terry? So we've talked about attachment theory in general on many other episodes, but just 
To give a quick recap, we are all neurobiologically wired to seek connection and security in times of stress and times of need. And our attachment style really develops in those formative years as a baby and toddler based on how our caregivers respond to us when we seek out that comfort. We've talked a lot about the anxious attachment, as you said, Louise, and now we're getting a lot of requests to talk about the avoidant attachment style. And the thing that I want people to understand is the anxious attachment style and the avoidant attachment style are both insecure attachment styles. So there is secure attachment and securely attached people got that responsiveness, that emotional attunement, that safety and security they sought consistently through childhood. But those of us with an anxious attachment style could have an anxious attachment or an avoidant attachment style. And I also want to talk about the two different kinds of avoidant attachment. So there's dismissive avoidant attachment and there's fearful avoidant attachment. And the key differences here have to do with levels of anxiety and beliefs about whether or not we are lovable. So those with a dismissive avoidant attachment style have low levels of anxiety, and they do believe that they are lovable and worthy. Although, as we'll get into, they see others as untrustworthy, unreliable. So there is fear underlying these attachment systems. When we talk about fearful avoidant, this is also called disorganized attachment. And people with a fearful avoidant attachment style have high levels of anxiety and low levels of feelings of worth and being lovable. So those with disorganized attachment usually grew up in an environment that was chaotic, traumatic, abusive, or severely neglectful. They learned that love is dangerous, love hurts. And so there's more of a push-pull. They do seek out that closeness and intimacy, but they're also scared of it. So then they pull away. So there are those two different types of avoidant attachment style. And I just want to make sure listeners understand that. Yeah, I think that's so important to understand. And I also think it's so important to understand how biological the drivers are of this. And we're going to get into that in today's episode and also in other episodes with Sarah, where she's going to deep dive into the biology. But ultimately, this is happening within your nervous system, within your neurotransmitters, within your body. And like Dr. Terry said, in those formative years, perhaps there wasn't the social buffering that you needed when you cried. Your senses were not being consistently calmed and soothed in the way that you needed them to be. And you ultimately developed your biology around this belief that love maybe isn't going to come consistently and it's scary or in the second type of attachment style that Terry said, it is actually dangerous. You kind of been physically hurt or deeply emotionally hurt. So I think that differentiation is really important. And just to add on to that, I just want to make it clear that with the dismissive avoidant attachment style, people with that attachment style learned that seeking comfort, sharing feelings is useless because they didn't get their needs met. So they grow up with that same belief. You can't rely on others you might as well just keep your feelings to yourself and don't become too reliant or dependent on anybody else. Yes. And one thing that I read in this crazy journal, which I think was called The Neuroscience of Human Social Interactions and Adult Attachment Style, if anyone wants to go and read it, was that the dismissive avoidant, they actually held themselves in a higher regard. Like they prioritized their positive personality traits and their sense of self more so than perhaps the anxious. And I think that is crazy because we've all engaged with 
an avoidant who has hurt us, but in no way seem to sort of acknowledge that it was their fault or that they have these traits about them. So do you think that that's fair to say that sometimes the avoidant doesn't even know that they are fearful of what's going on? No, that's a great question because we we do get a lot of those questions from people who have dated avoidantly attached people and they want to know, do they know how much they're hurting me? Are they aware that they're scared of this intimacy and connection? And it can be both. There are people that maybe are conscious of their attachment style and their beliefs about closeness, their fear of intimacy. But more often than not, I think that avoidantly attached people are just running these systems unconsciously like most of us do. And it is interesting that study that you found that avoidantly attached people suppress the negative aspects of themselves and are only really in touch with the positive aspects. It's very much what they do with their negative emotions as well. They've learned that they need to hide any signs of distress or emotional overwhelm because, as we said, there's no point. They've learned it's not going to results in deeper connection with someone. There's not going to be a safe space for them. So they just suppress those negative emotions. They may not even be aware that they're having them because their attachment system is so good at making them feel safe and helping them disconnect from the the hard feelings. And that point around being safe is exactly what is going on with both the avoidant and the anxious. Your body is trying to keep you safe. The two different attachment styles just do it differently. And I read somewhere that the avoidance biology deactivates, whereas the anxious biology hyperactivates, and that that's literally reflected in your brain and your body. Do you think that's a good way of summarizing what is going on with these two different attachment styles? Absolutely. And it's why, you know, when we talk about that anxious avoidant trap, why that happens when an anxiously attached person and an avoidantly attached person gets together, because when an anxiously attached person biology and attachment system is triggered, they become hypervigilant. They're seeking that connection. They're always looking for cues and information like, are we still good? Is there still connection here? Do they still like me? And on the other hand, their avoidant partner is doing the opposite. When their attachment system is activated, they deactivate, they detach, they want to be alone, they suppress feelings. So ultimately, they both end up triggering each other over and over again. Yeah. And that piece around hyperactivating or in the avoidant attachment styles corner, the deactivating, this is why it's not. People just feel like, oh, they just don't care. Like they're just really independent. Like they're just less affected by things than me. But truthfully, this is something that is going on inside their biology and in their brain. And I read a study with you previously, which is that they looked at the brains of avoidantly attached mothers when they came into contact with their babies and the areas of the brain lit up less than they would with, say, an anxiously attached or a securely attached individual. So I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit around how this is going on in the brain and is a full body experience. Yeah, these studies are fascinating because they study these areas of the brain that have to do with socio-emotional learning and also anticipation of pleasure. And securely attached mothers, when they look at pictures of their babies, those brain regions activate and light up. And with avoidantly attached mothers, when they're shown pictures of their babies, there is less activation in those brain regions. 
which says that this is neurobiologically wired into us. Our attachment systems are not just our thoughts, beliefs, and feelings, but like we've said over and over again, it's our nervous system. It's the connection between mind and body. One thing that comes to mind is I know anxiously attached people who have avoidantly attached partners are often like, oh, if I just make him or her feel really safe, then that will solve the avoided attachment issue. But it doesn't work that way. You can't change somebody's attachment just based on how much you love them. You know, you always have to be doing your own work to heal your attachment style. And I know for anxiously attached people that always want to be leaning in and doing more and working and seeking, that it's sometimes hard for them to accept that if they're with an avoidantly attached person, there's work that that avoidantly attached person needs to do and to let go of that responsibility or even that wish that they can change them. But before we get there, let's talk about this concept of the buffer, because you know you've said that the avoidantly attached mother's brains light up differently to the anxiously or the securely attached. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't love their child as much as the other, right? It just means that their biology reacts differently to the sense of closeness and intimacy and activation of all of the senses. It's like a calmer, slower response in the body rather than like a more dramatic one. Do you think that's fair to say that they don't love their babies less? They're just going through this sort of biological response that impacts them differently. Yes. It has absolutely nothing to do with love or care, but it's how the body has been wired. And research also shows that we can pass our attachment style onto our children right? Because in this study, when avoidantly attached moms are looking at pictures of their babies, their biology is sort of taking over. And like we've discussed so far with the avoidantly attached people, everything is kind of suppressed. Like it's a shutting down versus a lighting up and expressing. So it makes sense that when presented with their child, somebody that they love with all of their heart, even so, because of what they've learned, what their attachment system does, it's it's at a lower level. It lights up at a less degree. It's activated less than with somebody with a secure attachment. So yes, it doesn't have anything to do with love, but it's the ability to connect and what that idea or the anticipation of connection and intimacy does internally to us. Yeah, that's really important. And I also want to put ourselves in the shoes of the avoidant today. We are both, or historically were both, anxiously attached. So that's why we've done so much anxious attachment content. But let's say we are avoidant, right? And we have our anxious partner or even a secure partner, but more likely to be the anxious partner saying, you just don't love me. You just can't give me what I need. What is actually going on with the avoidant there? I'm sure there are many avoidants that really want to love their partner, really do love their partner, really want to build a long-term relationship with their partner, really want to open up and be vulnerable, but maybe they just find it hard. They feel biologically and physically this reaction when they have to open up their heart and open up their body and open up their mind and into the most vulnerable parts of them. What is going on there when the avoidant wants to love, but they find it really quite challenging? Yeah, I think they often find themselves in a bind because just like with the other insecure attachment style, 
there are fears underlying that about not being good enough, fear of rejection, right? And so an avoidant person, when they're hearing messages from their partner, you just don't love me, I'm not getting enough from you, you're not giving me enough, it is actually just poking at those fears that are underlying the attachment system. And so what I really want people to understand is for people who have an avoidant attachment style, they need space when they are overwhelmed emotionally. This is not something they're doing to punish you. It's what they actually need in order to regulate the attachment system and their feelings. Now, learning how to do this in a relationship is the tricky part. It's much easier if the avoidantly attached person is with a secure partner because the secure partner is more likely to be able to offer that space without taking it personally, without telling stories about it, and without their own attachment system getting activated. But as we talked about before, an anxious and avoidant can work, but only if both people are committed to healing and working on their own attachment styles. Not the other person's, not trying to change the other person's and feeling like the other person needs to be different, but looking at yourself. So I think that's really what I want people to understand is avoidantly attached people, they're going to need space sometimes. They need to be accepted for who they are too, and not to be told that they're doing it wrong or that they're not enough because that's just going to reinforce the beliefs that underlie this attachment style. And this once again is explaining why the anxious avoidant pairing is so difficult to make work because everything that the anxious needs to feel safe is what makes the avoidant feel unsafe. So I think we're doing a really good job at explaining how that dichotomy can not be a very good pairing. I also think what's really interesting is you helping anyone who's avoidantly attached or anyone who's in a relationship with someone who's avoidantly attached to understand that at the root, at the core, there is a core attachment wounding here. Something happened to them that made them consistently feel like love is not safe. Love is not there. Love will not come when I cry. Love will only come sometimes when I cry. And instead of just constantly focusing on the surface of like, oh, look, I shut down when my partner asks for X, Y, or Z. I think part of the healing journey, much like with the anxious, is asking what are those deep fears underneath the avoidant attachment style? What are the deep wounds under the avoidant attachment style? Let's talk about some of those wounds. I think some of the fears and wounds are exactly the same as the other insecure, anxious attachment style, right? The first one being rejection or abandonment. So think about a baby who's crying in distress or a toddler who comes up and grabs a hold of their mom or dad's leg because they need them. And they're either ignored or they're hit or they're yelled at or they're told to be quiet. What that teaches the child is, I don't care about your feelings. Your feelings are bad. Your feelings lead to dangerous situations. And those beliefs, those fears, those experiences are carried in the body into adulthood. So what I want people to understand is there can be this wounding underneath that it's like, well, if I show the real me, if I show that I actually need something, if I'm sad, if I'm angry, if I feel guilty, I'm going to be punished. I'm going to be ignored. I'm going to be rejected. And so it doesn't feel safe. Even though with the dismissive 
avoidant attachment style, we said there's low anxiety and like a more positive self-view. Underneath that, there still can be a defectiveness wound that maybe they're not in touch with. Again, same as with the anxious attachment style because they're both insecure. And as a child, if you reached out when you needed love and comfort and you were punished, ignored, neglected, yelled at, you are very likely to internalize that as a child because that's what we do to make sense of the world. We take on responsibility for things because then we feel like, well, if I could just be better, if I could just not have big of emotions, if I just don't ask for anything, then I'll be loved. And again, those are carried in the body into adulthood, into our adult relationships. So it's really important to understand again that there are deeper things happening under the attachment system. Try to see your partner as a child and what happened to them in childhood when they actually were vulnerable and asked for help. Those are some good questions to even ask. I will say that a lot of us aren't even in touch with that, though. We may never have even explored our own experiences in childhood and how safe it was to express feelings, emotions, and needs. Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem is having dated avoidant men when you try to engage in these conversations, you often get met with, I had a great childhood. I'm not avoidantly attached. I just value my independence. Or I had no problems in childhood. I just don't need so much. And I think that what you've communicated there is starting to do this work can help you understand what the core wounds are, what the core shadows are that these individuals are holding and how they've shaped your biology, whether that's fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, fear of intimacy fear of being seen, being exposed and actually being loved. Like that is a crazy experience for the avoidant if they have been closed down, not emotionally tended to, not physically tended to, being seen, being cherished, being adored, being loved. That's very uncomfortable for them as well. And I think that ties into this concept of just fear of vulnerability. They're so used to functioning on their own, being okay on their own, that actually letting someone in to their core that's very, very scary. And I had a friend who, they are actually together now and they've really done a lot of work on their relationship, but she met her dream man. He's so great. And she's avoidantly attached. And she just literally shut down, broke up with him and flew to the other side of the world. And she said, oh, that was my avoidant attachment. I just couldn't handle it. It was too good. I didn't know what to do with it. So would you say that your first piece of advice for someone that's avoidantly attached to go on this healing journey is to start that journey of introspection and self-awareness because you can't move forward without identifying the key fears and the key wounds that underlie this biological reaction. Yes. I mean, awareness is the beginning of any journey of self-discovery or healing, right? And I will say, if you are avoidantly attached, you may have stories about yourself that you need to look at or unpack a little bit. For instance, you may have a story like, ah, I'm just really independent. Like, I don't need a relationship or I, I'm not the one who gets attached in relationships. And again, these stories have served you. They're a way that you've made sense of how you feel safe in a relationship. But if we or you look deeper, there's probably more truths there to uncover. And I know we're going to talk about this a little bit with Alex Earl and kind of the things that she says about herself and the way that she shows up in her relationships. But yes, really beginning to look inward and identify what are my patterns, what are my stories, and what are my fears? Because even if you have a secure attachment, 
you have fears about getting close to people. It's a scary process. Love is a scary game because there are no guarantees. So beginning to just ask yourself some of those questions, I think is a really good first step. So I know with the anxious attachment style, we often talk about the cycle that just repeats and repeats and repeats until you start to heal this attachment trauma and wounding. Do you think that there is a cycle that the avoidantly attached individual also goes on or through when they come into contact with whatever it is that is their fear? Yeah. So if we're talking about the dismissive avoidant, which I think is often when we talk about avoidant attachment, what people are talking about, just because the fearful avoidant is, again, like that push-pull, it can be a little bit more chaotic, a little bit more confusing. So when we talk about the dismissive avoidant attachment style and what happens in that cycle, it's, of course, different than what happens for the anxiously attached person. So there is an event or a trigger which activates the fear for the avoidantly attached person. And then there is a biological reaction. The brain and the nervous system get involved and the nervous system is dysregulated, which feels like emotional overwhelm. All of this happens in a a matter of a split second. And you know when you're emotionally triggered because you go from zero to 100 in a nanosecond, like we're talking about. So then what the avoidant person does typically is they shut down, they pull away, and they need space so that they can deal with that emotional overwhelm. They need to be alone. They need time to think. They need time to process. They need to get away from whatever it is that's causing the emotional overwhelm, often their partner or the relationship. And then somebody who is actively working on their avoidant attachment style will then come back to the relationship in a more regulated state and talk about what happened and be ready to reconnect. Somebody who is not working on healing their avoidant attachment style or isn't even aware that they have an avoidant attachment style doesn't really do that reconnect. Maybe they just show back up at some point when they're feeling better and they don't address what happens. And they also don't understand that pulling away like that without communicating why it's happening can damage a relationship and cause your partner to be scared, confused. So the point is, for the avoidantly attached person, when they get overwhelmed, they disconnect, they shut down, they pull away because they're trying to regulate their nervous system. Whereas the anxiously attached, as we all know, They seek out that connection when they're feeling overwhelmed because that's what they need or they believe they need to regulate their nervous system. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting how you say they don't address what is going on with them. And that's what we see when people ask us questions like, oh, he or she just disappeared for three days. They're not texting me back. They're not picking up my calls. And then they come back. I think that what's important to communicate here is someone that is working on their avoidant attachment style will not only be able to have these conversations around the root cause fears, and we're going to go into the events and the triggers in one second, but they also will be able to address in the moment what is going on. They can say, this feels overwhelming for me. I can feel my body closing down. Are you okay if I take the afternoon to myself? but also not an open-ended, like I'm going to take all this time for myself. They will give their partner an end point on that. So they might say, I'm going to take the afternoon. I will call you at six and we're going to talk through this and we're going to go through it. Do you think that that's like a sign of someone who has an avoidant attachment style, who is addressing it, who is working on it and who is communicating about it? 
Yes, absolutely. Because they understand their process. They understand what happens in their body and in their mind when they get overwhelmed. They also understand it has an impact on the relationship. So whatever your attachment style is, if you're in a relationship, you need to find a way to minimize damage, right? Like in couples, we talk about rupture and repair. The conflict is the rupture. The repair is how you reconnect, how you resolve things and move on, hopefully feeling closer and stronger as a couple. People who are not working on their insecure attachment styles are going to have a really hard time (laughs) doing the repair part of that. And the rupture piece of that is going to be real messy because there's not a lot of communication or self-awareness. I think it's so important if you are avoidantly attached to work with what Dr. Terry has said there. Are you having these conversations not only with yourself, but with someone you are dating or with someone that you're in a relationship with? Because as someone who has dated avoidant men, the silence is so painful for another. And it's probably confusing for a securely attached person, but it's deeply excruciating for an anxiously attached person. And when I look back at an avoidant man that I spent literally years, like hoping he would become more secure and hoping he would see me and pick me and love me and choose me and we'd finally be able to be together. He wasn't having any of these conversations. Like every time we got a little bit close, he would just shut down and he was in a different country. So he just wouldn't reply for a few days. If he had even been able to say, this is really scary for me. This is what I'm going through right now. It would have been so much more healthy for me. And I also would have been able to be like, okay, I probably need to step away from this instead of me wasting two years of my life texting some dude that had no interest in healing. Yeah. What I want people to understand is people who have an avoidant attachment have a core belief that it is not going to do any good to be vulnerable, to lean into connection and intimacy. No matter how many times we tell them we're safe, We love you. We're here. It's the same as expecting an anxiously attached person to be able to heal their anxious attachment by us saying, it's okay. You don't need this constant connection and reassurance. You can give that to yourself. So there are deep like fears and core beliefs at the heart of both of these attachment styles. And for the avoidant, for anybody listening who has an avoidant attachment, I want you to know that I understand that you have never experienced safety and consistency and comfort when you've shown your true self, your true, messy, scared, imperfect self. But just because you haven't experienced that doesn't mean it is not available. And it's not as easy as me just telling you it's available or your partner telling you it's available. It's something you're going to need to When you're ready, lean into little by little. Be a tiny, tiny bit more transparent, expressive, or vulnerable, and then watch and see what happens. Yeah, and I want to build on that, that my ex-boyfriend, he was a fearful avoidant. So he had gone through so much abuse in his childhood that he had the fearful avoidant attachment style. And the love that we shared, the vulnerability that we shared through this profound, life-changing relationship He, to this day, even when I met him three years after we broke up, he said, that changed my life. Opening up to you and being able to open up to each other changed my life. It set me on this healing journey of finally being able to meet myself, my deepest fears, my deepest everything, and work through them and heal. 
but it's fucking scary, right? Like it's very easy to just be like, nope, I'm fine. I'm independent. Things work like this. Everyone else needs too much from me. I'm just going to keep going the way that I am. But what are the risks for the individual that does feel like, no, I'm fine. I'm just going to keep going like this for the rest of my life. What are they missing out on? And what can they really expect to step into if they do step into this space of discomfort? Well, I think for anybody who doesn't heal their insecure attachment style, what you're giving up is true intimacy, connection, really being seen and loved for who you are. And that's a lot to give up. However, if you've never experienced that, you may not feel like it's a lot to give up. But it means that these fears are going to continue to run your life and your relationships, and you're never going to have the kind of love that you deserve. And I guess, by contrast, if you do lean in and do the uncomfortable things, the scary things, the terrifying things, you're going to learn what it feels like to be loved for who you really are. And many of us have never had that experience because we didn't get it in childhood and we're too scared or don't believe that it's available for us in adulthood. You are so right. Keeping that buffer between you and others can actually reaffirm those wounds and stories that you hold about yourself. And actually it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And as someone that has lived with such heavy, deep and dark internal silent wounds about myself my whole life, actually bringing them to the light and working through them and being like, hey, these actually aren't true. These things that I've lived with my whole life has been profoundly life-changing. And as we come to wrap up this episode, we've spoken about what is going on in the biology and the deep fears and the stories and the wounds. Let's talk about the specific events and triggers that people can keep an eye out. Because if you could start to even acknowledge the micro moments in day-to-day life that can start this cycle, you can then start to understand how this is weaved into every conversation and relationship and engagement you might be having. A common trigger for an avoidantly attached person is when there's too much communication, too many emotional conversations. They're going to get emotionally overwhelmed. They're going to feel like we're talking too much. This is taking too much out of me. It feels draining and overwhelming, and that's going to trigger their attachment system. Another main trigger in relationships for somebody with an avoidant attachment style is a partner demanding emotional support. So if they feel like their partner has these high expectations of them that they need to be there in a certain way emotionally and they feel like it's too much or they can't do it, they're going to shut down, pull away, withdraw in order to regulate and get back to a feeling of safety within themselves. Another trigger in relationships for someone with an avoidant attachment is somebody demanding to be let in or asking for more emotional vulnerability. So if somebody has an avoidant attachment and their partner is like, come on, open up to me. I'm here. Talk to me. I want to know how you're feeling. I want to know what you're thinking. Even though their intention may be good to the avoidantly attached person, this is going to feel very intrusive and very overwhelming. And it's going to have the opposite effect. They're going to want to pull away, withdraw, so they can regulate their nervous system. Another common trigger for an avoidantly attached person in a relationship is if they feel their partner is becoming dependent on them. If they feel like their partner is needing too much and they feel like their sense of independence is being encroached upon. 
as we know, people with an avoidant attachment style do have a need for independence, sometimes hyper-independence that is not healthy or functional. But if they feel that their partner's needs are encroaching upon that freedom that they need to feel, that is a trigger for them that is going to cause them to shut down or pull away. Another trigger for an avoidantly attached partner in a relationship is future planning or talking about the future, long-term commitment, feeling like they're responsible to be planning a future with somebody can really trigger these fears of, is this what I want? Am I capable of doing this? It's going to lead to a lot of emotional overwhelm. And for an avoidantly attached person who has a lot of fears about relying on people, who has fears about connection and intimacy, this is going to cause them, again, to want to pull away or shut down so they can get back to a sense of regulated nervous system and emotions. That's so helpful. Thank you. I feel like that was an epic bullet point list of like the top things that trigger people. And I think what I took as the overarching theme there was that commitment, communication, and consistency trigger the avoidantly attached partner But what do you need to have a healthy, long-term, happy, emotionally vulnerable relationship? You need commitment, communication, and consistency. So I think that now we can understand why the other person will often feel like they're not getting what they need to be in a loving, deep, healthy relationship, whilst also helping the avoidant to understand that these are things that two healthy partners need to be giving to be able to generate this beautiful partnership piece. And I think that's the perfect place to end this, which is that we understand that those things, the commitment, the communication, the consistency, they generate a biological reaction in the body because they are triggering our deepest fears about what communication and consistency and commitment lead to. Because in childhood, consistency led to pain. It wasn't there and the commitment wasn't there and the communication perhaps also wasn't there. But I think what I'm learning from today's episode is, as ever, there's no shame. There's no judgment. If you are avoidantly attached listening to this, we are here standing with you. We actually went through the same things. The anxiously attached just took on those fears in a different way. We pull towards intimacy, whereas you push away. And it actually makes sense to push away from intimacy. Like if you've been hurt by something, I totally understand why you'd be like, I'm actually going to take a step back from that or even subconsciously not be aware that that's what's happening. So yeah, I think this has been such a powerful episode. Yeah, and listening to you talk there, I just wanted to make one more point before we wrap up because one thing that you and I both see and I see a lot of my clinical practice is when two people start dating, then they have sex, right? And then often that's when things go wrong. And if we put it in this context for an avoidantly attached person, once there's been sex, Sometimes they feel this pressure like, oh my God, okay, now there's going to be expectations of a relationship. There's going to be expectations of more communication, more intimacy. And that's when they disconnect and pull away. And I know we've talked about pacing so often, but because this is a pattern that we hear about in the house all the time, we see all the time, I just wanted to say that if you're not going to know if somebody is avoidantly attached early on, even though there are those warning signs, but this can be one of those warning signs. So sex too early can cause an avoidantly attached person to be like, "Uh, I can't do this. Never mind. 
yeah, and we saw this in the house this morning where one of our premium subscribers asked the therapist, like, what's going on here? Like, everything was great and he said all the right things. And then the second time that we had sex, he just never texted me ever again. And that doesn't necessarily mean that someone is avoidantly attached. It might just be that they got what they wanted and it was never going to be anything more. But I think it is so important to understand that the avoidantly attached, they can be excited about things in the beginning. They can say the right thing. But then when it becomes real, they can close down. And that's a question we get a lot as well. This doesn't make sense. He or she, they were so excited and they were the one that was leading the way, but now they're the one that's pulling back. And I think as ever, pacing, pacing, pacing. It allows you to get to know someone. It allows you to protect your heart. We have a whole PDF on that, how to spot the emotionally unavailable or the avoidant partner that's not working on their attachment style. Pacing is ultimately the way that both the anxious and the avoidant can start to connect gently, healthily, and slowly. Am I right? Yes. Pacing is the magic bullet and so few people do it. <laughs> but we're going to change that. That's we our goal. <laughs> Honestly, I don't have any tattoos, but I feel like if I was going to get one, it would be like, pace it, bitch. Like, please. <laughs> pacing, just pacing on my neck. So everyone will be like, hey, what's pacing? And I'll be like, funny, you should ask that. Let me tell you. <laughs> pacing is the thing that is literally going to stop you being heartbroken every four weeks. <laughs> yeah. That should be a bumper sticker. <laughs> I love it. Merch coming soon. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's the perfect place to wrap up. And if you are avoidantly attached or you're just enjoying getting to know more about this attachment style, later this week, we're going to drop the part two of this episode, which is analyzing Alex Earl, everything she said in her recent podcast episodes and how the avoidant attachment style can show up in day-to-day -day life and the different red, amber, and green flags that you guys need to be looking out for. Or maybe if you're avoidantly attached that you might be like, yeah, girl, I feel the same. I'm here with you. So that is going to be an epic episode. Come and join us. But for now, if you enjoyed this, please share it with someone who is avoidantly attached or someone who is on their healing journey trying to learn more please share it to your social media story, Instagram story. If you enjoyed this, it really helps our mission. It helps us reach more people and it just helps us keep this podcast going. So thank you so much. As ever, if you want to go deeper, if you want to talk to Dr. Terry Mack directly, become a premium subscriber. You can get access to her and the other therapists in the private room in the house with 650 other healing honeys and a back catalogue of 30 bonus episodes of which Dr. Terry is in many. So thank you so much. I feel like this episode has been so overdue. I'm so grateful for everything you've given us today and I will see you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we're the hosts of Seeing Red. We deliver intriguing, terrifying and dumbfounding true crime stories each and every week. With a focus on cases from the UK, we do occasionally venture overseas. We've covered everything from the mysterious death of professional footballer Emiliano Sala to the attempted murder of Victoria Cilias, a woman who fell from the sky and lived to tell the tale. Binge our bulging back catalogue and join us every Wednesday for a new episode of Seeing Red.